Uh, we started last week to preach through the book of Revelation. That is our normal habit here at the church is more often than not we preach through, we choose a book of the Bible, we preach through it from start through to finish. And we committed ourselves to looking at this book, which often gets avoided in many churches, um, over a period of 13 weeks. So let's open up in prayer as we come before God that he might open our eyes to see uh, what he has for us in his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that the Almighty God, reigning over all heavens and the earth, would not only consider us, but would make yourself known to us, and even when we stray, that you would willingly send your Son to die to bear our punishment that we could be restored in a relationship with you. We could be reconciled, we could have peace with God. Lord, we continue to live in a world which is broken in many ways and corrupted by the effects of sin. And we know that when you return, you will make all things better. But Lord, in your words, you give us hope, not only for eternity in the future, you give us hope to live for you today. We pray by your spirit that you would encourage us in who you are, what you have provided for us, and the very sure and certain hope we have both now and for all eternity. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know how there are some things in life that you just kind of hope, one day before I die, I really want to see this. And it might be something that you've tried on many, many occasions to try and see that thing. And you've never been able to catch a glimpse of it. Whether if it's a rare animal or a bird, if you're into that type of thing, a particular thing in nature, a solar eclipse, a lunar eclipse, any of those things, whatever it is. And then there's that one friend of yours who's got no intention or desire to see it whatsoever, yet they just happen to see it. That one thing you've been longing to see for a long time. Back in 2011, Sarah and I went on our honeymoon to New Zealand. We've been back a couple of times since then. And one of the places we were hoping to go see was to see Milford Sound. We'd seen some of the beautiful photos of the beautiful bright blue waters, the lovely mountains, the waterfalls and all that wonderful scenery. We were so keen to see it. Here's a photo from our experience on the honeymoon. Pouring, raining, really foggy. You don't see that particular photo appearing on too many of the postcards. But apparently it's what you often see when you go there. We were keen to see Milford Sound. Safe to say we are still keen (laughs) to see Milford Sound. But in the meantime, it's just a real joy to look at the photos that other people have taken and videos that other people have taken that get to see it in all of its splendour. And there's that sense of awe, even though you don't see it with your own eyes, you get to see it through the experience or through the lens of somebody else. Today we're looking, as John is given a special vision of Jesus. It's not our vision. We don't personally see it with our eyes or see it in the sense in which John sees it. 
But John is commanded by Jesus to describe everything he sees so that we can behold what he saw, that we can meditate on it, that we can have a sense of awe of this picture of Jesus, which John was privileged to see for his benefit, for our benefit. He's not given the vision just for the sake of God putting on a bit of an impressive show to show him how good he is. It's not a sign that John is somehow super spiritual that he got to experience this. Rather, it's a vision of Jesus Christ, of what he is like, that was not only a blessing to John in the situation, in the setting which he found himself in, but he was commanded to write it down in a book because it describes the nature of Jesus that brought comfort to Christians who were suffering, Christians who were asking questions of, is Jesus really in control? Is it worth following him? And they see something of the grandeur, the splendor, the majesty of Jesus. It's helpful to the first century Christians and it is helpful to us. Last week as we began our series in Revelation, we noted that this is a letter written by the Apostle John to seven churches in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, to encourage them to remain faithful to Jesus because not only were they suffering for being Christians, but in many areas of life they were under real pressure to compromise their faith maybe even to give up they were being persecuted for being christians the emperor was demanding that he be bowed down to worship as a god and you were unable to enter into the trade guilds and therefore it threatened your livelihood to refuse to bow down to the emperor and then there was all the surrounding religions that had so many appealing aspects to them And John is calling them back to faithfulness, reminding them who their God is. Reminding that he is the one who conquers, who ends up victorious over all things that set themselves in opposition to him. And reminding them there is eternal blessings for those who remain faithful to him. It's sad at times that it's a book that gets avoided or sometimes just causes division amongst Christians. A book that essentially by its own confession is a revelation of Jesus Christ. A book, and as far as I'm aware, the only book that promises blessing to those who read it, who hear it, and those who heed and obey the things that it sets forth. Sometimes it gets overcomplicated because of the type of writing it is. It's unfamiliar, it's not the type of thing we're regularly reading I suppose I used Narnia as a kind of example, something where there there is a storyline that you see on the surface, but it's intended to communicate something so much deeper than the storyline that you see with your eyes. Like Aslan, the, the lion in Narnia is not just a lion, it is to be a portrayal of Jesus Christ. But the style of writing of apocalyptic, it's about revealing something which was formerly hidden. It uses symbols and images to portray truths. And while it's unfamiliar to us, for the first century audience, who didn't have a copy of the book to keep going back and referring to, 
would have probably heard it read from start to finish once as they gathered together one time. The scroll which was passed around the seven churches was read and not only did they understand the type of writing it was, but they could see how it applied and encouraged directly the situation they found them within. And as we think about this vision to John, it's my prayer that we would be comforted, that we would be comforted in the same way in which the first recipients were as well. As we work our way through, we're going to see that this is not your average Sunday. John receives a vision to behold. You see, comfort from the conquering king. As we mentioned last week, John shares a lot in common with those who he's writing to. As he introduces himself again in verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John is not writing as someone who's detached from the circumstances of those to whom he's writing to. He's writing as someone who has experienced suffering for the name of Jesus. It is said there was a Roman penal settlement there on Patmos. Potentially he was there in that particular thing where they often would send people out who were um, disruptive in the community. We know from history there are, there are ideas that John was boiled in oil to try and kill him, but he survived. He knew what it meant to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. He was certainly qualified to speak to them about their circumstances of hardship and the temptation to give up. He speaks of this partnership with them which describes effectively the Christian life and summarises the book of Revelation in three words in terms of trouble or tribulation, of kingdom and of patient endurance. That's pretty much a summary of the book of Revelation. Trouble, kingdom and patient endurance. And you'll notice all three of these things are in Christ. Trouble in Christ, kingdom in Christ, patient endurance in Christ. And as you look at the earthly ministry of Jesus, you see his earthly ministry was marked by those three, three things. Trouble, kingdom, and patient endurance. And so it's no surprise that the, that the life of those who are his followers will be marked by those same three things. What he's about to describe happened on a Sunday. The way it's worded is the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, the day when Christians would gather together to ponder who Jesus was, to praise Jesus. Historical writings say they gathered together and worshipped Jesus as a God. It's a day when these things already happen that John is given this wonderful vision of Jesus that reveals what his nature is like and is commanded to write it. But how does this whole vision thing work? Was he having a little kip and he had a bit of a dream about these things? Has he gone into some weird sort of trance? Has God somehow relocated him into some other place? The language we're given here and the only language we're given here is 
in the Spirit. And he uses that language at a number of significant points to introduce different visions in the book of Revelation, also in chapter 4, verse 2, 17, verse 3, and 21, verse 10. So somehow the Holy Spirit is involved to somehow give to him an impression or a vision of what he's about to describe. It's not something exclusive to John in the book of Revelation. Ezekiel uses the exact same language in his prophecy, the means by which he received the visions that he describes. Paul speaks in a similar way of himself in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, although he says the things which he saw are things that he can't talk about. By means of the Holy Spirit, John is given a peek into greater spiritual realities, not just as a privilege, but as an insight and encouragement and a blessing that was relevant to him and to Christians for all time. Firstly, hearing a voice that was like a trumpet, exactly like Moses did on Mount Sinai as Moses met with God in Exodus chapter 19. So the one who was said in last week who was coming with the clouds from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, that Paul says in 1 Thessalonians, we'll be coming with the clouds with the sound of a trumpet. And John's commanded by Jesus to write down everything you see and distribute these to these seven churches. This book is to be read, heard and obeyed and there is abundant blessing for those who do. But isn't it a privilege that John writes so that we can participate, so we can share in what he got to behold, what he got to see? John, who is encouraging people to be faithfully obedient, himself is obedient, to write down these things, he turns to the voice and describes what he sees. And at the centre of what he sees is one like a son of man. A description which has already come up in the first part of chapter 1 that comes from Daniel chapter 7 which speaks of a son of man who comes to the ancient of days and who's given a dominion, power and authority and an everlasting kingdom. Remember we're talking about apocalyptic literature which is highly symbolic This vision isn't given to us so that we've got a description of what Jesus' appearance looks like, but rather it gives us a description of what his nature is like. The same which could be said about the entirety of the book. The book tells us what the world is like. It is not given to us to describe what it appears to the eye to be like. But before describing the Son of Man, he sees firstly seven golden lampstands, which Jesus helpfully tells us in verse 20 is symbolic of the seven churches. But why lampstands? I mean, I don't see a lampstand if I'm down at a shop and think, oh, churches. We know that the lampstands were used in the tabernacle, they were used in the temple. But a really interesting insight is in Zechariah chapter 4, he Zechariah is given a vision of a lampstand with seven lamps which is used to characterise the entirety of the temple or the tabernacle. 
And so here is the seven lampstands representative of the churches, not only of seven specific churches, which will be addressed, but the church for all time. Remember what we saw last week, Revelation 1, verse 6, that we are a kingdom of priests. Where do priests belong, minister, temple? Samuel gave us a wonderful reminder of that a number of weeks ago in his message from, from Ezekiel. Paul speaks of us as church, as temple, a number of places, but specifically in Ephesians 2. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles, prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So throughout the New Testament, you'll see outside of the gospel where there are references to the temple of God or God's temple. It's a reference to the church. But this number seven is also significant throughout the book of Revelation. We saw last week where, speaking of the Holy Spirit, spoke of the seven spirits. Not because there are seven individual Holy Spirits, but it represents a fullness, a completeness. And while he's addressing seven individual churches, which Samuel will speak about the letters written to those churches next week, and he's writing to issues specific to them, but they are also characteristic of the church for all time. And standing in the middle is the Son of Man. In the middle and amongst these churches, where there is suffering, where there is real pressure, to compromise on the faith, when there is real questions about, is Jesus really reigning? Has Jesus given up on us? There is Jesus. There in the middle. Standing amongst the churches. As the Son of Man, the one who has come to the Ancient of Days, who has an everlasting kingdom, who has all rule, power and authority. Jesus is not distant from these people. Not at the time of John's writing, not at the time right now. I don't know what you're going through, but I can say pretty certainly that in this room there are some people who feel very tangibly the nearness and the care of Jesus Christ in their life. And there's probably some who really feel like can't feel even a slightest smidgen of it. He is... John has given this vision because we need to be reminded of it. In the middle of the lampstands was one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. His hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice like the roar of many waters." As I said, this isn't a description of what his appearance of Jesus looks like. This isn't what people saw Jesus in his resurrected, glorified body. That's not the way he was described. But it is a description of his nature. One wearing a long robe like that of a high priest. As Jesus is the final high priest who has brought the final sacrifice. The writer of the Hebrews says the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. 
but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Isn't that comforting to know? Not only is he in our midst, he is there at the right hand of the Father, the final and everlasting high priest who intercedes for us, who wears a golden sash. Not only is that characteristic of a high priest, but if you read through Daniel chapter 10, and I'd encourage you when you go home to read through Daniel chapter 10, because there is so much in common between these two visions, of one who had golden sash around his waist had white hair like wool or like snow. Not just because he's old, not just because Jesus was around for some long period of time. It's the exact imagery that Daniel uses in Daniel chapter 7, speaking of the ancient days with hair that is white like wool, like snow. Speaking of the wisdom which comes with age. But it's interesting, in Daniel chapter 7, it's the ancient of days usually correlated with the father who's described in this way with his hair, yet then just a couple of verses later, you have this son of man. And now here the son of man is being connected so closely to be identified also equally with the ancient of days. An expression that he is indeed the God-man. His eyes were like flames of fire, who can see even the innermost deep secrets of our heart. He can see the depths of the struggles that surround us. This image comes up again of flaming eyes in Revelation chapter 19 when it speaks of the one who comes to bring about final judgment. He has feet like burnished bronze. Again, comes up again in Daniel chapter 10 in that same vision, the same one that had the sash. A voice like many waters, again, like a sound of a multitude, Daniel chapter 10. Then in his right hand holds seven stars, which again Jesus helps us out, is the angels of the churches. Samuel is going to speak about those letters addressed to the angels of those churches next week, so I'll give him the fun of, of explaining the nature of what they mean when we get to that next week. But whatever is understood of these angels... They are in the sovereign control of this Son of Man who holds them in his hands, standing in the midst of the churches. From his mouth comes a double-edged sword that is both able to defeat all of our enemies, but also the representative of the one who will come and destroy all who stand in opposition to God and his kingdom. This one, by his words, will be the judge of all mankind. That same imagery comes up in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 4. With a face shining like the bright daylight sun. We see these throughout the Bible, Jesus on, the, on transfiguration. We see the same as Moses encountered the presence of God in Mount Sinai, comes down with a face which is glowing with the glory of God. We see Paul and his encounter on the road to Damascus with Jesus in that bright flashing light. What a picture of power, might and purity. A picture that was given and was told to write it down to bring comfort to a people who were suffering 
who are wondering about, is Jesus really caring about us? Is he really reigning? They get a picture of a one who has all dominion, who has an everlasting kingdom, a one who will defeat all enemies, the one who will come to judge, the reigning king is in their midst. And like so many who have seen something of the glory of God throughout the scriptures, John falls flat on his face. You see the same of Isaiah, so you can count something of the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 6. We see Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts. We see Daniel exactly the same again in chapter 10 as he receives that vision. To receive even a glimpse, something of the glory of God just seems too much for any mankind to handle. But this almighty son of man, so overwhelming that it causes John to fall flat on his face, he bends down, places his hand on John and says, do not fear. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Kind of reminds me of that scene in, As- in the Narnia series when they say, is Aslan safe? And the answer they are given is, he's not safe, but he is good. We've seen this majestic, powerful image of Jesus. And as John falls down, he has the tenderness and sensitivity, places his hands on him and says, do not fear. He said, fear not, I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one, I died. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. The almighty son of man, fear not. I am in your midst. I am with you. I am for you. You belong to me. I don't care what's happening around you. You belong to me, the one who is the ultimate victor over all things. This isn't just comfort to the churches of the first century. He stands amongst his people. We don't need to come to our church service and open up with a prayer and invite Jesus to come and stand amongst his people. He is in the midst of his people. Caring, protecting, guiding. And as we see here in this letter, even in the middle of deep hurt and hardship, I don't know what's going on in your week, but I do know that the one who has all power, all authority, says, fear not, would come and place his hand upon you and say, you don't need to fear. Remember who you belong to. Remember who has all authority. I'm the first and the last. A description that is given of God, the Father, in Isaiah 41, 44 and 48 who died, died a particular death. He came and died a death that was our punishment for our sin. He was our substitute, dying in our place, and rose again and lives forevermore. Because when he died in our place, he conquered the power of sin. He conquered the power of death over us. He conquered the power of Satan. Because he raised and he reigns forevermore. He says, I've got the keys. 
to the grave. I've got the keys to death. Even if death was a threat to you, that's not outside the bounds of my power. I've conquered death. During a time when many Christians would have been dying for their faith, Jesus, who's standing in their midst, says, Don't fear. Know who you belong to. I've got the keys to the grave. I've got the keys to death. And so John is commanded again to write the things that you see. Things that which are now and things which will soon take place. Remember, John is speaking in the, to the last days. Which as we saw last week, the way the Bible uses the term last days is everything between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. So he says, write these things which are now and will continue to characterize all of the age until Jesus returns. So what? Is it just an impressive little story? John got to see something pretty spectacular. Now, I know there's going to be some people who are like, why don't I ever get something like that? Why don't I get to see something like that? How come I just get the dud stuff? Like John got like the postcard picture of Milford saying, and I got Steve and Sarah's honeymoon photo. But this wasn't John's private experience. It was given to John always with the intention that he would write that that we can encounter it any day we want to, picking up his word, that we might be able to stand in awe in the glory of what is revealed to John, written for us. To ponder it, to meditate it. Not just to once off see it like John did. Unlike Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, where he says he can't talk about it, This is a vision which we get to intimately share in. This is a grand vision of our almighty saviour that is available for us to ponder and stand in awe of him daily. Now you might say, but I just want to see the glory of Christ. I want to see the glory of the Lord. Remember how Moses asked of that? And God says, I'm going to hide you in a rock. You can't see it, you can't stand it, but I'll pass by. You can see figuratively the back of me. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai, having been in the presence of God, his face shone with the glory of God and he had to wear a veil because people couldn't handle it. But through the written accounts, we encounter the glory of Christ. We experience something of beholding of the glory of Christ in a way that even the most significant Old Testament saints never did. I want you to ponder with me what Paul says to the Corinthians. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He says, we all, unveiled, behold the glory of the Lord. And through beholding the glory of the Lord, we are transformed from one glory to another. 
Why would John begin his letter writing to suffering and tempted Christians with a vision like this? Because he knew that to behold the Lord was the key to being transformed. To see something of the beauty and majesty of Jesus allows us to look upon our troubles, to look upon the temptation to look elsewhere for our satisfaction and to see them as totally useless and laughable. To see the beauty and majesty of Jesus, to think about turning or looking anywhere else, just looks ridiculous. As the old song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus because when you see him, the things of this world will grow strangely dim. This is why the psalmist David writes in Psalm 27, one thing I've asked of the Lord and that which I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That's the one thing he wants be in the presence of God, to behold something of his beauty and majesty and glory. I don't know what's in your heart, but is it longing to see the glory of the Lord? Is there a desire to want to see him more deeply and more intimately day after day? When you open up your Bibles to read God's word, are you thinking, I hope I learned something I didn't know? he's saying I want to encounter the living God I want to behold the glory, the splendour the majesty of this whom, this one that I belong to because what Paul said to the Corinthians is beholding effectively is becoming what you behold, what you gaze upon will transform I think so often we try to grow in the Christian life we try to deal with temptation by means other than this. We just think, oh, I've just got to you know, grit and try harder. Or I've just got to get a big list of things that I will never do and, and I'll somehow just grow into maturity and I'll deal with temptation. I just need to read and pray more. More effort won't change much at all. God's pretty clear. We need a change of heart. What you behold, what you focus your eyes, your attention upon, will affect your heart. I think it's pretty clear we have a rating system for movies because people recognise what you take into your eyes impacts you, it affects you. Let's think about what Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 6. He says, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he'll hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and stuff. You cannot 
You will not grow. You cannot, you will not fight temptation if your gaze, your focus, you are beholding and set upon the things of this world. It's surprising the amount of people who are like, I just don't feel like I'm ever changing, whose life is consumed by things that aren't going to transform you in a positive way. We're given this grand vision of Jesus by Jesus that we might see something of his glory, his splendour, his majesty, that anything else competing just seems so minuscule and so ridiculous. I desire one thing, that I might look upon the beauty and glory of our Lord. It's my prayer for me, it's my prayer for you. That we'd have such a grand and majestic vision that would capture our heart, that any hardship that comes our way, any temptation that comes our way would be seen the way which it truly is. A momentary light affliction preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is what the early Christians needed to hear amongst their difficulties, amongst their temptations. This is what we need to hear. I'm going to pray that God would help us to see him in this way. Heavenly Father, So often we we settle for a, a casual look to your word. Sometimes out of guilt. Sometimes out of a sense of feeling we need to meet a Christian quota. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes that when we come to your word it would be out of a deep thirst and hunger to see you on every page of the Bible. To encounter the living God in such a way that when we look at our circumstances and our life, we are reminded of the one who stands in our midst, the almighty one with all power and dominion, who even in our deepest, darkest moments places his hand upon us and says, don't fear, I'm the first and the last. I died in your place. I've conquered sin, death and Satan. You know what? I'm going to return. And those who are mine will enjoy blessings forevermore. But we thank you for your care for us. We can thank you for your care for us even when we don't feel it because we know you are in our midst. You are working that which is good and pleasing in your sight. Help us to rejoice. Help us to see you. Help us to cling to you in all times. For you are good, you are our hope, both now and forever. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Next, next week, we, I don't know if we're going to be reading the entirety of it, but we're looking at two whole chapters, so I'd recommend reading those in advance. <laughs>